Hello and welcome back to the True Crime Guys podcast. I'm Warren. And I'm Michael. Well, we're back. Happy to be back. I uh, hope you guys enjoyed. If you are not a patron member, hope you enjoyed our Jody Arias release that was... How old was that episode? Over, what, like four years old or something like that? I believe so. I believe I believe it came out in 2017, maybe early 2018. Yeah, yeah. and then uh, the week before that we did... Uh, a Patreon exclusive episode. So you guys haven't, we haven't done a free episode on the on the regular platform in a couple weeks. I was out of town right. last weekend. And I'm just happy to be back, and we got a great case for you this week. Oh, dude, seriously, a crazy one-off case. Yeah, right? with yeah. somehow uh, one of the more talk- infamous cases in Colorado, in Colorado oh, sure. history. And heads up, this is an unsolved case. I know some people like a heads up on that. I don't mm-hmm. know. That being said, it didn't stop the police from uh, believing it was solved and locking the wrong person up for ten years. It's one of those cases as well. Oh yeah. Yep, another one where they got laser-focused on somebody who happened to be close to the crime and just couldn't see anybody else. They had blinders on. But there mm-hmm. is, but in the end, though, we talked about it before the show, in the end, there is a, a, a factor in this case that is unlike any other case we've ever done, which is pretty cool. Still, it's yeah. hard to believe, right? In, all, in the hundreds of episodes that we've done, we're, we're finding a, a scenario that we haven't seen yet. Pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah. One of the detectives actually having some self-awareness and self-reflection and correcting a wrong that she had done in the past. Uh, yeah. Something we haven't seen before. And so, yeah, as many cases as we've done, there's always something that comes up. We're like, well, this is a new element that we've never discovered. Exactly. So, I'm exactly. excited to get into this one. Uh, you ready? Let's do it, man. We got our guy. Saw her and said nothing. And we got our guy. His art is rather hard. The leads are just lies and no meat And we don't care if he's only 15 He's just a crutch that we need And on him we'll lean He's just a crutch that we need And on him we'll lean oh. He ain't never going home Cause we got our guy He saw her and said nothing Yeah, we got our guy His heart is rather haunting So we got our guy Understanding is pressure about Someone will pay for the blood on the ground She was young and loved and taken too soon Walking alone in the light of the moon It's just a case, wrong place, wrong time Now they have their guy, they have their guy You know they got their guy They said, we got our guy He saw her and said nothing Yeah, we got our guy Art is rather haunting, yeah, we got our guy, no matter what you say, yo, we got our guy, behind bars he'll stay, yeah, we got our guy, he saw her and said nothing, yeah, we got our guy, his art is rather haunting, yeah, we got our guy, no matter what you say, we got our guy, behind bars he'll stay, cause we got our guy, behind bars he'll stay, cause we got our guy. 
All right, for our case this week, we are doing one of the oldest and most infamous unsolved cases in Colorado's history. And I want to thank Eric C for the suggestion. I forget where he suggested it, Instagram or whatever, but uh, Eric, big shout out. It was a while ago you suggested it, but here we are. Here we are. Great case. Sometimes it takes that. All right. Sometimes it takes a little bit of time. Maybe we already have a few cases that we're already interested in. That doesn't mean we're not going to get to your Mm -hmm. suggestion, but man, this is a great one. Yep. And this is the case, uh, the murder of Peggy Hetrick. Um, as, like I mentioned, this this went down in Colorado, Grand Junction to be specific. Mm-hmm. Um, it is technically still unsolved. The the real killer's never been been found yet, and they did, like I said didn't stop them from locking up the wrong person for ten years. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's let's start at the beginning here with Peggy. Uh, she was born March first, nineteen forty nine, in Lovell, Wyoming, and shares a birthday with Justin Bieber, Tyreek Hill, and Jamar Chase, two of wow. the best young wide receivers in the in the league right now. Seriously, um, and Justin Biebs, the Biebs, you know the Biebs, man. Think, feel what you want about the Biebs, <laughs> but the dude's talented, right? He was. Oh my god! He, like the videos of him when he was little, like drumming in the kitchen, and just like that kid was destined to make it. Yeah, he was like playing. He, he was like grind from a young age. He was like playing on the street and shit when he was, you know, 10, 11 years old, playing on street corners and stuff. I mean, I guess his mom kind of pushed him out there into this, but uh, either way, he seemed like he enjoyed it. Right, it doesn't seem like he was. I was like gonna say abused. it didn't seem like he was uh, dragged along for it. He seemed like he was into it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But just having a parent that would like allow you to do that is pretty crazy, right? Yeah, like my mom. That can work. My mom that can work when. I, I, sorry, go ahead. I was just gonna say my mom would never put me on a street corner and leave me at ten, eleven years old. There's no fucking way. <laughs> like no matter what, right. I just don't think. Even in the time when I was ten, you know, it'd be late nineties. Uh, just I just. I just don't see that happening. I don't see that happening. Yeah. I watched a whole documentary on um, Bam Margera, and that was part of his thing. Like, his parents let him do whatever he wanted. Yeah, and, that was like, His father followed him around and videotaped every second of his life, and, like, they, they never made him do one chore or nothing. Like, they let him, like, chase his dreams fully. Granted, it created kind of a narcissist, and you saw, like, he went down a – he's been down a bad path with drugs and stuff for a yeah. while. Hopefully that, you know – I'm rooting for the guy to get out of that. But like sometimes the parent thing, you know, if you fully push your kids to, to go after their dreams like that, eh, sometimes it works out, I guess. Yeah. I mean, like I, maybe it's not the best thing for young people to become famous in, in the first place. And you see a lot of times they struggle with abuse, uh, substance abuse and stuff like that later on. No doubt. It's a lot to handle at such a young age. You know, I always take that into consideration mm-hmm. when thinking about people like Justin Bieber, Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera, Justin Timberlake. Like they came up like in the Mickey Mouse Club. Like they were always in the spotlight. Yeah. The, the, their their perception of the world is so skewed. You know what I mean? And then you're you're used to living yep. this luxurious, lavish life as a kid. It's like it's, and then when you have to when you see what goes into all of that as you grow older, it's it's a warped reality. It really is. It's like I feel for him in yeah. a little bit. I feel for him a little bit. I do. They have they oh, have no their hard aspects of life. Just just never knowing who your real friends are or whatever. I mean, you got just surrounded by yes men from the time you're a child, and it's like I'm sure they get screwed over time and time again by people close to them. Oh God, and you yeah. don't you probably get trust issues after a while. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. But back to Peggy. So Peggy Hetrick, like I said, born March first, nineteen forty nine, in Lovell, Wyoming. As a child, Peggy traveled the world due to her father being in the military. And she grew up largely on a military base. She lived for many years on Wheelis Air Base on the Mediterranean coast of North Africa and Libya. Hmm. I thought and I thought her she father went to school here. I'm sorry. I thought her father was involved in the oil business, the oil industry. Was he not involved in the oil industry? 
as well. Maybe it was her mother that was in the military. I know she grew up on a uh, military base. Okay. Off the coast of Africa. Yeah. And actually went to, she graduated from high school on this, this air base, Wheelis High School. Yeah. um, Wheelis Air Base. She graduated in 1967 and was very well liked, very popular in school. Um, She was a a young, uh, spunky redhead, five foot two, 115 pounds as an adult. And after graduation, uh, she enrolled at Arizona State University um, and always had a smile on her face, always pleasant to have around. Yeah. And from here in the mid 70s, she would move to Colorado to tend to her mother, who was who ended up being sick with cancer and actually lost her battle uh, somewhere in the mid mid to late 1970s. And in 1978, Peggy would move to Fort Collins, Colorado. Okay. You said her father was in the in the oil business, huh? That's yeah. Interesting. In the documentary, um, her brother was interviewed, and he mentioned how they moved around a lot because of their her father's position, and they lived in like all types of different countries all over the world. Maybe he was involved in oil within the military or something. Yeah, maybe, know. maybe, maybe, maybe possible. that's what he meant because of his role in the military dealt dealt with oil and and different things like that. Maybe that's what caused them to move so much. I mean, we know the military likes to go take oil from com- from countries. So <laughs> They've been known. That... <laughs> They've been known. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. Yeah. It's kind of like their primary motivation. Let's go get some oil. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 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 I don't want to get into that whole thing, but <laughs> yeah, that's a different <clears throat> podcast. Yeah. So yeah, she moves to Fort Collins in 1978 and there she would work as an accessories manager at a store called the fashion bar, uh, within a popular shopping center in Fort Collins. And at this time she had a casual boyfriend named Matt Zolnar. Um, it they were on and off again though. They, you know, they were also dating other people and they would get back together and it was, yeah, not that serious. Right. Right. Peggy seemed um, kind of like was, an unbridled she, spirit. She was having fun. Yeah. Yeah. She was having fun. She was in her thirties at this time, but still, um, frequently, uh, going to bars in the Fort Collins area yeah. in, into the night. And she knew a lot of people. She was very popular and well-liked in the area. Um, she had, a, she also had a love for reading and writing though, and dreamed of one day writing her own novel. Who doesn't, right? <laughs> yeah, I feel I, like everyone funny, has, you know, you said that. Cause like, I'm not, I, I'm like one of the last people you would think would be like that, but I, I do dream do. of someday when I, when I retire and having a lot of time on my hands, writing some sort of a fiction novel or something like that, it would just be fun. Even if no one read it, it would just be fun to explore Wouldn't it? ideas your brain can come up with in that fashion, you know? Yeah, no doubt. I feel like everybody, even if you're not a writer, you have something that you know enough about that you could write about, you know, and it would be somewhat interesting. Right. And I think a lot of people have that kind of as a bucket list. Like you say, maybe when they get older, they retire, maybe they write like an autobiography, if nothing else, to pass on to their kids. You know, that would be cool if people got into the habit of doing that and you kind of have this first-hand yeah. account, you know, as as accurate as it can be from one person. We, we all know how flawed the memory mm-hmm. can be, but still it would be cool to hear the way that your father or your grandfather remembered their life, you know, or your grandmother. Yeah. That would be cool. But yeah, maybe I would do that. Yeah, and one it'll day. be a timepiece at some point. Like if you wrote your autobiography, like your grandkids someday when the world is completely different, like even if your life wasn't that interesting, It'll be interesting to them just because the world you lived in, just to get a glimpse into, you know, what their life is like now with technology versus what our life like was like. Just like exactly. I have a, there was a, there was a grandfather through marriage that uh, some guy that like married my my great grandfather wrote a book that we actually still have, and uh, it's in paperback and like it's about his life and it was just so different because it was like life in the '30s, you know. Yeah, and it's interesting because it's interesting you're connected even to if it. The, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But the good thing is now, you know, everything is documented online with all, think about how much information about us is online just because of this podcast. 
not to mention the personal yeah. things that we put up, you know, it's like our future generations are going to have this history that we never had. You know, I can look at photo albums yeah. of my grandparents and great grandparents and stuff. And, you know, when they were in the war or this and that, and that's cool. And you can kind of piece things together. But when you think about how but imagine if they had a video podcast back then, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Or imagine it could go back and watch or imagine if they had a social media page that they shared a new photo on, you know, three to four times a week. You know, whereas right. back in the day, a photo was a rare occurrence, right? I mean, you took photos at mm -hmm. family get-togethers, weddings, funerals, just important things. Yeah, you, and, and no one smiled. It was just a stone-faced yeah, camera. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> because no one knew how they looked on camera either, right? Because you're not used to seeing yourself. Yeah. You don't know what face to make. It's It was just a different time, mm -hmm. different time. The, the, our, yeah. the future generations are going to be lucky that they have so much history to look back on, I think. Yeah. So Peggy living in Fort Collins, Colorado, and in the, in the late 70s, she didn't own a car and didn't think twice about walking around town. She was always on foot, yeah. walking from place to place, frequenting bars at night alone, walking around. Jeez. Maybe not the best idea as we come to find out. Um, although at the time, Fort Collins was a small and safe town in the 70s and 80s. It, it's grown significantly over the last three decades. And like I said, it was it was looked at as a, quite a safe community to for a woman to even walk around alone at. Right. But we find out. You know, as there is anywhere, um, there's there's predators out there. Um, Absolutely. And no matter how safe a community is, all it takes is one, uh, one bad seed to, you know, potentially end someone's life if they're not careful. That's right. And that leads us to the night of Tuesday, February 10th, 1987, when Peggy left for work just after 9 p.m. and walked home, as she often did. She did make it home on this occasion, um, but upon her arrival, she realized that she didn't have the keys to get into her apartment. And this was due to the fact that her normal roommate, uh, Barbara, was out of town on vacation in California, and she'd actually taken in a temporary roommate until Barbara got back. Mm. And the temporary roommate had her keys um, and was inside the apartment and had been out drinking all night and was basically like blacked out, passed out, and not answering the door, unfortunately. Uh-oh. Yeah, okay. so Peggy can't get into her apartment. She's pounding on the door. Um, Sharon, the temporary roommate's not answering. Um, so Peggy decides to kill some time by visiting one of her favorite local bars. She was planning to go out this night anyway, but she wanted to get home and change after work. Right. Um, so, so she just goes, you know, dressed in what she wore to work and goes straight to one of her favorite local bars, the Laughing Dog Saloon. Fort Collins apparently has some cool name bars here because you hear of several of them in this, in this case. But the Laughing Dog Saloon is her first stop, and then she makes her way to the Prime Minister Pub and Grill. Oh, yeah, those are pretty this, dope. It, it makes me think of uh, one of my favorite movies, The World's End, with Simon Pegg, when they go on the the pub, you know, this epic pub crawl, and they they make all these stops. This sounds like a couple of bars that would have been in that movie. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm not familiar. In fact, there might have been a prime minister pub in that movie. <laughs> I don't know. It sounds familiar. Yeah, seriously, that's probably a popular name for pubs. You know, yeah. I don't know. It's a cool name. Um, so while at these bars, she called her apartment several times, trying to get an answer from her temporary roommate Sharon. She did finally get a hold of her at about midnight and headed home to change before heading back out to the bars, which she went back to the prime minister pub after getting changed. There she ran into her boyfriend or on again, off again, boyfriend, Matt Zolnar, who was actually with another girl at the time. But like I said, they were, their relationship was in that way. It wasn't, uh, she wasn't upset by the fact that he was there with I, another girl. They talked for a bit. Yeah. I think they had split up at this point though. At least that's what they made it seem like in the documentary. It made it seem like that they had split yeah. up, but they were still on good terms. They were still friends. He sees her out at the yeah. bar late, and he's like, "Why are you know? Why are you here alone? Do you need a ride home?" 
right? Like that's the type yeah. of relationship they still have. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, he offered her a ride. She accepted the ride. But when he went to use the bathroom before taking her home, um, she got impatient apparently and took off on foot before he got out. Um, mm -hmm. And this was about 1.15 a.m. And it's really unfortunate that she didn't just wait for him to use the restroom real quick and, and get that ride well, because yeah, we know, know now what happens. I know, but you had to be at the time, you got to be like, do I really want to ride home in the car with my ex-boyfriend and his new girlfriend or this girl he's with? Yeah, right. You know? Awkward. And she walks everywhere all the time. It's no big deal. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Like, you can't even blame her for this. It's like in hindsight, you're like, God, why did you walk home by yourself? You had a ride. But it's like she walked everywhere all the time. Yeah. And this is, this is a woman who'd been all over the world, you know? Yeah. So, so it's hard yeah. to blame her. Unfortunately, uh, her leaving the Prime Minister pub, um, this is the last sighting of her alive. Yeah. The last confirmed sighting. You know, there's some stories here and there of, oh, I saw her there, but like this is for sure confirmed um, by someone that she knew really well, her ex-boyfriend. Yeah. Um, and about six hours later on that same morning, February 11th, 1987. So the next morning, February 11th, um, the body of 37 year old Peggy Hetrick was found in a field in Fort Collins. She had been stabbed to death, sexually mutilated. Her nipple had been removed. Mm -hmm. a, bike, a bicyclist passing by the field on his way to work had discovered the body and immediately informed police. She was found less than 500 yards from the prime minister pub. So didn't make it that far. And she was, it seemed on the sidewalk and when she was attacked from behind, but with a knife, with a serrated knife. Yeah stabbed uh in a location that caused a, a lot of bleeding um this, this initial stabbing it, it it hit an artery or something because there was a jar, large pool of blood right there and then she was then basically drugged into this field like 100 yards oh god um, yeah the body had been partially disrobed and portion uh, positioned on its back with uh her legs uh, slightly apart and arms over its head the right breast and pubic area were exposed the left nipple and a portion of the victim's vagina had been cut with a very sharp instrument yeah. possibly a scalpel there was also distinctive scratch marks on her face. The Laramie Counter Coroner, uh, Larimer County Coroner, determined that the victim had been stabbed in the back by a serrated knife with a five-inch blade. It's a large knife. Yeah, it is. Um, mm. The blow lacerated her left lung and pulmonary artery. Like I said, that's why there was so much blood. That first stab was was uh, deadly. Like she would have died pretty quickly from uh, blood loss yeah it almost seems calculated huh it's like somebody knew that shit like maybe somebody with a medical background or something could have done this yeah and then you think about the the cut to the vagina with a you know seemingly with a scalpel or something yeah and then you find out the the track marks the shoe marks from the uh killer were dress shoes which was odd we'll find that out later but um, on the curb of the street adjacent to the field where, the, where she was found, the police discovered a large pool of blood with a half-smoked cigarette belonging to Peggy lying in the middle. So mm. walking along or standing there smoking a cigarette and is attacked from behind. This, along with other evidence, led them to believe that the knife wound in the victim's back was caused by a surprise attack from behind at the location of the blood pool on the street curb. After deliver, delivering the fatal wound, the bloody trail indicated that the perpetrator dragged the body about 103 feet into the field where she was found. Um, mm -hmm. so horrible. Um, the only thing you can say is that at least she was initially stabbed in such a deadly location that hopefully she didn't suffer much more. It was like, she lost that blood so quickly and was, was gone before the rest of the mutilation and attack occurred. Well, she wasn't gone before he dragged her through a field. God, can you imagine no. that dude? Just, but I just hope by the time that she landed in the field at the final resting place that she was already gone before the mutilation of her. You know, you can only hope parts occurred. 
Yeah, you can yeah. only hope. <clears throat> so uh, p- upon uh, discovering her, uh, her murder, police then went to her apartment to speak to Sharon, the temporary roommate who gave police information about Peggy, you know, her comings and goings, the people she hung out with, the bars she frequented. Um, Sharon told the police about Matt, her on again, off again boyfriend, mm-hmm. but also mentioned a man named Derek that she had recently met at the Laughing Dog Saloon. Police then called Peggy's normal roommate, Barbara, who was in California at the time, and Barbara spoke about the same man, this this Derek character, who was apparently in his early 20s and planned on living in a tent with his friends. Kind of a sketchy character. Um, now, keep in mind, he was in his early 20s. Peggy's 37 at the time. Yeah. Um, and this may have been the guy that's, uh, people when police talked to more of Peggy's friends and and stuff they they kept saying that there was this this young man that she had been alluding to who that she said was about 24 and it's she had stopped seeing but she was concerned that he kept trying to contact her Mm, um okay there was also another man police would find out that was in peggy's life a man named timothy matthews who would often crash at peggy's apartment after a night of drinking rather than going home and timothy while being interviewed by police also mentioned this this a young man who she had recently broken up with. He said that she was at Peggy's uh, Peggy's apartment on one of these nights when they'd been drinking when a young man showed up at the apartment and she told Tim to lock the door rather than let him in. So she was clearly kind of afraid of this this young man and wanted to be done with him. Now, I didn't know about this. I didn't know about this Derek character. Well, it's kind of a... Well, you're assuming that this guy is Derek. We don't know that the person that that she turned away that night was Derek. But yeah. Okay. Yeah. But we do know that Derek yeah, had a fascination was... with her at the time. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and his description from these from different people all matched up. He was apparently, like I said, in his early 20s, average height and heavy build with shoulder-length brownish hair, mm-hmm. um, blondish brownish hair. But this is all we get. Like, uh, police never locate this character. You know, he's out living in tents and whatnot. He has no... No one ever found out his last name. And this is just one of those guys that goes on the suspect list that unfortunately will never be tracked never, down because yeah. unless, and like, unless some kind of sort of uh, genealogy DNA, DNA left at the scene gets tracked down through his family tree or something like that, which we see happening on a daily basis now. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the only way I can see that because like I said, he was apparently some sort of drifter and disappeared now, after Peggy's murder. Now, it, I, the only thing I say is that, that kind of gets me off the scent of him is the, the dress shoes thing though. This guy was clearly a drifter. Like the fact that the killer was so, Yes. Um, you know, so fine-tuned with a knife and a scalpel and then was wearing dress shoes leads to me to believe it was someone okay. in the professional field and not a, not a kid living in tents. It could be. It could be. But also, something else that should be noted is like, if you ever go thrift shopping or any secondhand store, the number one shoes that's in there are always dress shoes. Yeah, that's true. They're always dress Very shoes. True. They They got to be the easiest shoes to come by. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like dress shoes are always left. Yeah, because the once shelf. they get a scuff on them or something, the professional person in the business world is going to get rid of them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or they're a little bit uncomfortable or whatever. But also, people aren't looking for dress shoes at a thrift store, unless you have That's no choice point, yeah. and you need something else. You know what I'm saying? So it's somebody who's homeless, yeah. somebody who's living in tents, they wouldn't really give a fuck if they went to a thrift store and found a, a comfortable pair of shoes that were their size. They might just get them. They don't care. Mm-hmm. You know. So yeah. just something to just something to consider. I doubt that that's what it is. I really think, like you say, I think this is someone of higher class. I think this is someone who wears dress shoes on a regular basis. But just wanted to throw mm-hmm. that out there because we don't know. Maybe someone in town on business that disappeared after the murder. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have uh, we have a couple of potential suspects to this day. At the end, there's one that's 
that kind of fits the mold of what you would expect. And um, also coincidentally killed himself shortly after Peggy's murder as well. So, or actually shortly after the person was wrongfully convicted, I believe. I, we'll, we'll talk more about that later. But, but unfortunately, that's it for Derek. The police were never able to locate him and probably never will unless something happens as far as DNA, gene- genealogy or something like that. Now, is, did, they, did they collect any DNA from her? Any like male semen, anything like that? Obviously, this was a sexual attack. So do they have anything? Are they keeping that close to the chest? Yeah. I, they do. Yeah, they got DNA. That's how they were uh, able to rule out the person that they had convicted for 10 years later on. Okay. All right. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah, but we'll get to that. <clears throat> so detectives determined that the killer was uh, wearing dress shoes based on the tracks that were found at the scene. Um, mm-hmm. And there was a, there was an interesting uh, thing regarding Peggy's uh, gold bracelet that she was wearing at the time of her, her death as well. That bracelet she had reported uh, missing or stolen to police like a couple of weeks prior to her death, and yet she was wearing it um, when they found her body. And oh. some have speculated that maybe the killer had taken it and then put it back on her after killing her, which I think is far-fetched. I think it's more likely she just found the gold bracelet after she reported it missing and then was wearing it. That's what I was going to say, because a killer who's going to do this, they would want to keep that keepsake. Or maybe, think, right? or maybe, or maybe they don't want with. or maybe they don't want to be tied to it. You know, maybe they mm-hmm. were afraid that their resident might be, their residence might be searched. Maybe they would be connected. And then if they find that bracelet, it's a done deal. Yeah. So I don't know. Well, either way, it was clear that it was a sexually motivated murder. Um, mm-hmm. She had the gold bracelet on her body still, and all of her belongings were still found there. So it was not a robbery gone wrong. It was clearly a, a sexual uh, killer here. Absolutely. So uh, Linda Wheeler Holloway was a detective that w- with Fort Collins Police that participated in the investigation early on. We'll talk more about other detectives as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but the first thing she did was canvass the neighborhood uh, to see if anybody had seen or known anything about the murder. Very common practice in you know homicide investigation. You start canvassing, talking to people. Right. One of the first houses that she visited was that of a trailer home where a family called the Masters lived. Um, and the father, Clyde, answered the door. And this, this uh, trailer was just a few hundred yards from where Peggy's body was found. And after interviewing Master's father, um, Clyde, Wheeler Holloway realized that the Master's, uh, that, that um, Clyde's his son, son, right? his son had seen the body apparently on his walk to school that morning, but didn't report it to police. And with that information, uh, Nancy said that she had found her first suspect. She said, I went, he needs to be interviewed. And so approximately 10 a.m. that morning, um, Timothy Masters, the son who had seen the body, was contacted at his high school concerning the murder. Mm-hmm. So police show up to his school, um, at homicide detectives, and he told police that he had seen the body but believed it to be a mannequin. Um, that's so typical, right? That's, that's so typical. I just talked about this in my latest five-minute murder episode on Patreon. Yes, you did. <laughs> um, so common. Yeah, yeah, doll. Either you think you saw either a doll or a mannequin, and more often than not, it's actually a real body. So. I mentioned in the five minute murder show, if you're driving and you see, you know, off the side of the road, what you think is a mannequin, you might want to either check it out or call authorities to have it checked out just to be safe. Right. Especially if you're going to claim that you saw it, if you're going to claim that you saw it, you need to confirm, uh, what that was, or you could end up in a situation like this young fella. Yeah. Where he admitted he Uh, saw it, but didn't report it. Not reporting it, uh, yeah, creates a whole lot of issues and ruins this guy's life for a long time. Absolutely. Um, because another detective working the case, James Broderick, was convinced oh, that Lord. Timothy was their guy. Not this, this guy. guy. This yeah. guy. 
he's was, that he's that detective that uh, gets that tunnel vision and can't let it go. That's this guy. Yep, got them blinders on. Mm-hmm. So Timothy Masters was interviewed for over nine hours over the next two over the next two days. Uh, his father Clyde was present in the interrogation room at for least. some of it. For some of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he ends up leaving later, and they berate the shit out of Timothy. Mm-hmm. Timothy says, quote, I remember all morning long going back and forth in my head. Did I just see a body? And then saying, no, it wasn't a body. Somebody's just playing a joke. Mm. Um, police would also conduct several polygraph tests and the results were, quote, inconclusive. And it just made me think like there's always only ever two outcomes for police when they conduct a polygraph on a suspect. It's either you lied yep. and then they start pressing harder or it's inconclusive. There's never like you were truthful. They never say right. that. It's just either inconclusive or you lied. That's yep. it. And a lot of times when they say you lied, it's it's they're actually lying to you and they're just trying the, to get you to confess. Yeah. And the only time a person actually, quote unquote, passes a polygraph test is when the police want to rule out somebody that's inconvenient in yes, their investigation. Exactly. It's like, oh, like okay. If they, if they did a polygraph on someone else in this case other than Timothy, they'd be like, oh, he's truthful. It's clearly Timothy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. They passed. Oh, Timothy? Yeah, yeah we yeah. lost his results. But this person passed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. It's shady stuff. So the police, uh, the police would conduct consensual searches on Timothy's bedroom, locker at school, and his backpack, and they found some concerning stuff. He's a teenage uh, boy. Timothy, yeah, uh, he, he was. Yeah. But pretty dark. Timothy though. has, yeah, pretty dark. I gotta say, but like, <laughs> also doesn't mean you murdered someone. No, but, absolutely uh, not. Timothy had some things in his bedroom that concerned police, rightfully so. In his bedroom, they found a large collection of knives and swords, which didn't bother me too much. It's pretty typical for a teenage boy, I think. If if yeah. the parents allow it, you know, not, most parents aren't going to allow a you know a teenage boy to have a sword collection or knife collection. But if they did, of course, the kid's gonna have that. Yeah, exactly. Um, this collection included six survival knives with long blades of which it had a hollow handle containing a scalpel. One mm-hmm. of them did. One of them contained a scalpel inside. The, I remember those type of uh, like army knives that had the hollow handle and you could store stuff in them. Yeah, yeah. I might have even have one, had one at some point. Um, it's kind of weird that it had a scalpel in one of them, but, one, you know. Especially since they say do? a scalpel was used. Yeah. On the victim. Oh, of course, right? Yeah, that doesn't look good. Um. But if uh, there was no DNA found on any of this stuff, to be clear, like none of the knives had any Nan- of Nancy of uh, Peggy's blood on it. Yeah. Um, none of these knives were the murder weapon. Um, so the, 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 you know, the uh, scalpel that was found inside one of those knives was not used on the, cr- so it's kind of irrelevant in a sense, mm-hmm. other than he's the type of person to have these, the knives that could have been used in a murder, which that's your going across some bridges there. But like you said, a 15-year-old boy that lives in an otherwise very safe and boring town, like they want a little bit of edge, a little bit of excitement, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. A little bit of a little bit of darkness. They want to experience that. They want to feel like they're a part of that. And weapons yeah. are weapons are just things that people are drawn to. Yeah. Police then found what would end up being the majority of their case against him, which is a treasure trove of drawings and stories that Timothy uh, had like a collection of yeah. 2,200 approximately pages of graphic photographs, writings, um, something that the police would call uh, war and horror, war and horror productions. They yeah. found this basically just giant stack of stuff that he'd been drawing, and and like he almost seemed like he would have become like a fiction writer or something, like in the horror genre. Maybe he would have become like a yeah. horror director or something because he was really into this. Once again. 
a lot of young boys draw some graphic stuff um and maybe he was just really into that like a lot of people now they make a, make a living drawing stuff like that there's you know there's a market for it no doubt i mean and there's also a market for these dark videos and shit that go around the web you know like mm -hmm. people watch this stuff on a regular basis at this time they didn't have that you know in the late 90s yeah. there wasn't there wasn't the dark web to go on to and like wonder what if so boys still had that natural fascination and you know, drawing and expressing these things with his friends, you know, and he also, he also mentioned in an interview that he had peers that encouraged him to draw these types of things. Like he would draw it and then they'd be like, well, this is crazy. You should draw it. Da, 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 da. He's like, half the shit I drew was just suggestions from peers and stuff that, that they wanted. You know what <laughs> I mean? You're not locking them up. <laughs> They're the ones that wanted it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Just because, yeah. you know, that because they didn't want to be the ones that drew it. Right. Mm -hmm. They didn't want to be the ones that were tied to it. So Timothy was like, yeah, yeah. whatever. It, it made him cool. It made him relevant. It made him edgy, I guess. That being said, let's not act like if you if you found this in your son's bedroom, you wouldn't be concerned. I'd be a little bit alarmed. Because, yeah, yeah. The, the writings and drawings were, were very graphic, often repulsive. They indicated no that Tim was deeply fascinated with death, particularly death by stabbing or slicing. There was a lot of stabbing and slicing going on, which of course police yeah. are going to be like, well, there you go. Now, um, many I, of the victims, go ahead. I was going to say something I don't agree with was the fact that they, they kept trying to take these drawings and say, oh, it, 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 um, it represents violence, especially towards women because of his mother. And I'm like, there was like maybe one woman in the drawings that I there, saw the rest of there them. Was, looked, they were just like weird creatures. There was dinosaurs. There was skeletons. Yeah. There was all was, kinds of yeah. weird creatures. Yeah, it was it was fantasy. It was fictional. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, and they, someone actually did the math, and only ten percent of the drawings were actually uh, were women depicted as being victims in it. That's what I'm saying. Which to me, yeah. like, that almost shows you right there. It was almost always men on men violence. It was a lot of war mm -hmm. stuff. You know, it was like medieval swords slashing guys and stuff like that. Absolutely. Yeah. <clears throat> Um, although many of the victims in Tim's productions were often killed from behind, which of course made police connect to the murder, mm -hmm. um, or had distinctive scratch marks on their faces, which also made the police connect to Peggy's murder as well. Cause she did have a distinctive scratch on her face. Um, mm. they also, some of the drawings had, uh, pools of, tr uh, pools or trails of blood, often accompanying images of murder, torture, decapitation, or dismemberment. When you have those sorts but, of things and you're drawing pictures of graphic war scenes and stuff, of course there's going to be puddles of blood. Right. That kind of comes with the territory. Yeah. There's going to be some blood. Yeah. In one narrative that approaches 150 pages in length, um, Timothy related a world in which a group of boys, the Reckons or Recons, were at war with a group of girls, the Reds. And of course the police connect that to the fact that Peggy was redheaded. Um, oh my God. And at one point, a character named Maddox with whom the uh, with whom Timothy identifies himself states that it gave me a hard on to see that at least ten reds dropped instantly. Uh, in another more graphic example, there's a drawing of a knife slicing through what appears to be a vagina. That's of course the police are going to connect that to Peggy as well. Yeah, but there, but that, when you have twenty two hundred pages to work with, that's one of my uh, things about like people connecting things to the Bible. Is like there's so much in the Bible, so many different crazy stories and scenarios that of course you can yeah. like horoscopes as well. You can always connect like, well, that's me. Like you find the one thing that, <laughs> that works and you take that and leave the rest out. Yes, you know? yes, that's such a good point. That's a great point about the Bible. You can pick and choose what fits your life, what yeah. fits your narrative, your theology theology and you can mm -hmm. you can spout it about yeah just like this like you say 2200 pages that, like that hasn't really that didn't really sink in when i watched the documentary but yeah over 2200 yeah. pages the few amount of drawings that they shown 
It's like yeah. they made it out like all the pages. They could have taken just, 10 pages that fit their narrative and left the other 2,190 out, you know, yeah. that didn't fit the narrative. Exactly. They love this giant sample size they can work with and pick and choose stuff to present at trial for the jury. So true. So true. It made it easy for them. Yeah. So although there was multiple pictures and narratives with similarities to Peggy Hetrick's murder, there's not a single image or passage that duplicates the crime. There's not a picture of or story about a woman being stabbed in the back or having her nipple removed. Also, none of Peggy's DNA was found on anything uh, within the master's home as well. No hair, no blood on any of the knives, no, nothing like that. Nor was his um, DNA so, found at the scene. No, which yeah. they didn't know that yet. But like, Right, right. Um, we would find that out later. Right. Due to there being no physical evidence linking Timothy to the murder, they unfortunately for them, they couldn't arrest him and the case would go cold. Um, however, they would continue to go back to him and harass him. Um, a year later, police still had no strong suspects other than Timothy, who in my opinion still wasn't a strong suspect, but in their mind he was. He was yeah. the guy. He was the um, only suspect, so therefore a strong one. Yeah. So detectives, desperate, tried to trap th Timothy. They had the local newspaper. They did find uh, articles in Timothy's bedroom uh, following Peggy's murder, um, of mm -hmm. course, because he found the body. To me, of course, he's going to save that. You know, he saw her body. Of course, he's going to save that, yeah. that article, in my opinion. Absolutely. That's he not feels, weird to me at all. No, nah, he feels connected to that. Yeah, but they, they with that information, they tried to trap him a year later. They had the local newspaper run an article about how they had a new strong suspect in Peggy's murder. Oof. And they made sure that that newspaper made it to um, the master's home and they were hoping that Timothy would see that and, and what, do something, confess? I guess, because they, yeah, well, no, they, they hoped that he would then um, start to do what sometimes killers do where they go to the the crime scene to revisit it or go to the, uh. Uh, to the grave. Um, and so they, they staked out following putting that newspaper article out, they staked out, Peggy's gravesite. They staked out the murder, uh, where the murder happened, and they mm -hmm. they staked out the master's home, and nothing happened. Timothy nothing. didn't go to any of those locations. Yeah, um, one of the detectives in the documentary they put on the case, he was like, he's like, I fit, I just felt so silly. He's like, they were telling me to go and stake out the grave because he might go and visit it or sleep on it. He's like, I'm sitting here in a graveyard waiting for a 15 year old boy to come sleep on a grave. He's like, this is ridiculous. Right. Absolutely ridiculous. Because there and, were there were a lot of detectives like that were that didn't believe this from the start. We got to be fair, okay? This is not the whole police department narrow narrow um, narrowing down yeah. on Timothy. There were plenty. It was of people, mainly one detective. Yes, but he was, was apparently very powerful and ahead of the case, right? Yeah. So they yeah. kind of is is the way that their their power struggle is there in the police department. I guess a lot of people didn't have any authority to overrule him because this was his case. But there were other detectives who were speaking out for Timothy and saying that we should look at other other uh, aspects and other other uh, culprits. Yeah. So they're not letting this thing go. So in 1992, five years after Peggy's murder, while uh, Timothy was now off in the Navy trying to live his life, mm -hmm. uh, Linda Wheeler Holloway, one de the female detective, and James Broderick, the guy that was obsessed with Timothy and was convinced that he was the killer, um, they went and met with him. Uh, I forget what state he was in at the time, but uh, he was in another state in, mm -hmm. the, in the Navy, and they interrogated him for about 12 more hours at this point, five years after the murder. Um, this was instigated after investigators discovered that Timothy had apparently told his friends details about sec the sexual mutilations, including the removal of Peggy's nipple. So now they have this new information. They're yeah. hearing through the grapevine that Timothy had been talking about how he knew these details that mm -hmm. only the killer could know, they thought. 
That's bullshit. The investigators thought this, yeah, the investigators thought this information had never been made public. Well, they knew it had never been officially made public, but of course, word gets around about certain details. Especially um, in a high school. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they thought only the killer would know these details. Yeah. And so after convincing the judge to sign it, uh, to sign a, uh, um, uh, an arrest warrant, they went, so they actually went to him while he's in the Navy to do this interview with an arrest warrant after convincing the judge to sign it. Uh, and, uh, but they came away thinking, you know, at least, uh, uh, Wheeler Holloway, the female detective came out, came out of this 12 hour interview thinking that they had the wrong guy. She had thought initially all along that he was yeah. the guy until she had sat down and talked with him. She said, quote, I identified him very quickly within two hours of the body being found. And I always thought up until the point that I met him, that he was the murderer. But after sitting down with him, she had a different opinion. Quote, I was an experienced homicide investigator and I just didn't see a guilty man looking back at me. Um, and he had an explanation for the, you know, this whole story of him telling friends the details about her nipple being cut off and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. He told investigators that a friend in his art class had told him about the mutilations. Yeah. The friend had been a part of the group of Explorer Scouts helping to s the police search the crime scene, and he was told of the nature of the mutilations early in the investigation. So there you go. If, if one kid, like multiple kids were used in the search of the field, right? Mm -hmm. So it, it just takes one, honestly, to go back and say what he found or what he heard or what they found or yep. heard w during that search, and then it's all over the school. I mean, this is a small town mm -hmm. in Colorado. You know what I'm yep. saying? And then you have one yep. of your classmates, one of your peers that is suspected. Yeah, it's going to be news. It's going to be news. Yep. Yeah, so detectives looked into this, what he's saying, and it checked out. You know, they found out that, in fact, you know, Timothy had been told these details, and that's, that's you know, and then he'd continued the telephone game of spreading it around. Mm -hmm. um, meanwhile, Linda Wheeler Holloway left the Fort Collins Police Department in 1995. So this case continues to be cold. Linda Holloway, Linda Wheeler Holloway leaves. But Detective James Broderick was still there and was still determined to take down Timothy Math Masters. And in 1997, 10 years after Peggy's murder, uh, Detective Broderick contacted a forensic psychologist from California, Dr. J. J. Reed Malloy. They always do this, right? Like when they don't have the, the physical evidence to they, prove that you, yeah. they start turning to like psychologists and things like they that. Bring or, in and they, they find not just any either. <laughs> like they, they keep searching until they get the one that will tell them what they want to the, hear, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, real quick, before we get too far from uh, Miss Linda Wheeler, you know, she left the Fort mm -hmm. Collins PD in 95. Uh, she was basically yeah. forced to leave, though, because they... Oh, I didn't know that. Yes, because she disagreed on this case and because the way she was fighting it and trying to propose other suspects and, and whatnot, they bumped her down to a patrol cop in like 94 to 95. And then she was like, you know what? Fuck this. I'm not going to be a patrol cop. And she left. Mm -hmm. So they kind of forced yeah. her out. They forced her hand. Yeah, well, she stuck around. I think she she uh, joined the, the Colorado Bureau of Investigation. Yeah. And she, she later, as we've kind of alluded to earlier, helps to um, free Timothy Masters after he gets locked up. Right. So we'll talk more about her and that uh, unique situation that we've never seen before. But um, so this, you know, so Broderick, the detective that's de determined to get Timothy locked up, goes to this forensic psychologist, uh, Dr. J. Reed Malloy. Mm -hmm. Malloy analyzed Masters writings and artwork extensively and concluded without having, having ever spoken to Timothy Masters, which he could not since Masters was protected by his Fifth Amendment rights. He concluded that some of the drawings represented Masters reliving the crime. Mm. <laughs> yeah, he was able to find all that evidence. Yeah. 
I think he yeah. said he found 10 different instances that linked him to the crime, and he had no doubt in his mind that Timothy Masters did it because of these drawings. Mm, of course. That is damning. Um, yeah. So on August 10th, 1998, uh, Detective Broderick finally got his way when Timothy Masters was arrested in California and charged with first-degree murder over 10 years after the killing. Mm. Um, he had gone all of these years, Timothy, without getting into any trouble. He had a successful career in the military as an aircraft mechanic, yeah. despite frequently being harassed by Fort Collins police. It, it was like every year, every other year, detectives were, were coming in, bringing them in for interviews. And you have to imagine it would be difficult to maintain a relationship or get jobs when you're constantly under suspicion for murder. Right. You're tied and to And being this. interrogated and never knowing when they're going to show up again with, a, with a, an arrest warrant or whatever. Yep. So they charge him and he's going to trial and key points in the prosecutor's case against Timothy Masters. We've talked about some of them, but first there was this, this several similarities between Timothy's mother and Peggy Hetrick, which they're really stretching there, in my opinion. Like that's their motive is that his mother had died and she was exactly like she looked a lot like Peggy, the victim. Mm hmm. And um, but there was nothing about him having a bad relationship with his mother. There's no like know, right? Ed Kemper so, shit going on here. He lost his mother at a young age. Why would he go killing women because of that? That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, your mom dies, and so four years later you go and kill a woman that looks like her and sexually mutilate her. That uh, makes that's, no sense. It makes a lot of sense, right? <laughs> we studied a lot of psychology of killers over the years, and we've never seen something like that necessarily. No, no. Usually it's an abusive mother that would drive them to hate women, not. Not someone who was a good mother and died young. That just don't make sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Miss um, Hectric was uh, was killed almost four years after the death of Tim's mother. The memory of his mother's death was apparently still fresh in Tim's mind. Of course, it was. Um, two it's Mother's Day cards made by Tim when his mother was still alive were found in his backpack on the day after the attack. A photocopy of her death certificate was found in the kitchen in his residence. Um, okay. So once uh, again, uh, so still, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not seeing how any of this is criminating incriminating right um peggy like tim's mother had long wavy red hair and tim admitted that although he did not know miss hetrick's name he might have seen her around the neighborhood well that's a strong piece of evidence against the case right? oh whew, yeah man yeah hey, i might have seen her around the neighborhood yeah lock him up he did it <laughs> <laughs> okay i flipped i turned the corner on this guy yeah. he did it yep right um, yeah, one particular drawing found Tim's backpack found in Tim's backpack the day after the victim's body was found aroused suspicion. The drawing depicted a person dragging a body of another person by the armpits. Blood drips from the back of the body as it's dragged, leaving a bloody trail, which is actually similar to the situation with Peggy's murder where she was stabbed on the sidewalk and then drug into the field. Yeah. Um, this is exactly how investigators supposed the victim was moved from the street to the field. When asked why he drew the drawing, Tim told investigators that he drew it to, quote, get something out of his system because it was bothering him. Yeah, I wish he wouldn't have said that. Mm, seriously. That doesn't look um, good, Tim. Don't, 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 don't say that. <laughs> yeah. In general, but, don't just don't talk to but look, uh, detectives. I mean, okay, look, it. first off, the dude is into the macabre, right? He's into the dark. He's into mm -hmm. this shit, okay? He sees this body. He sees the blood trail. I mean, you can see the blood trail from an aerial view of the field. It was it probably is, stained on that sidewalk for years, I'd Exactly, imagine. exactly, okay? So he sees that. Yeah. He knows what happened. He's dealing with mm -hmm. that. Maybe drawing this helped him process it somehow? Like, yeah. I don't know how to, I don't know how to explain it, but it doesn't mean that he did it. You know what I'm saying? And then and they also, found it in his backpack the day after the murder, so it was very fresh in his mind. He had just seen it exactly the day prior. You know, yeah, he's still working through some stuff. And they went and talked to him the morning after the murder. They came to his school, 
So like he's dealing with it on multiple fronts. Not only did he see her body, see the blood stains, but also now he's having police come and talk to him as a suspect. Right. Like, maybe this is his wheel of de- way of dealing with it. Coping it is like drawing it out. I don't know. Exactly. Clearly that's how he expressed himself was through art, you know, graphic art. Right. And that was a way that he related to his peers. It was like therapy it was, for himself. Yes. It was everything to him at the time. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> the prosecutor pointed out that Tim could not have known based solely on his observations on the morning after the murder that Peggy had been dragged in that manner. What are you talking? Like, we know that there's the big blood pool on the sidewalk and then her yeah. body's found a hundred, a hundred feet away. Like, right? it's not that hard of a conclusion to draw. I'm sorry. There's like a dr- a blood trail. He probably saw the whole fucking blood trail, the blood pool, that, everything. That's what I'm saying. You couldn't miss the blood trail. Yeah, yeah, even if you look, watch the documentary on YouTube, and anytime they show the body in the field, her body laying there, you can see the blood trail all the way from the sidewalk. It is clear as day. There's no way you would yeah. walk and up we'll on that. We'll put the link. We'll put the link to that that uh, documentary in yes. the description of this episode. Yes, so you guys can out. check that out. And maybe even the your wife can put the photo in the video. I don't know if it's too graphic to put on here, but no, we'll put the photo. All right, cool. Um, so when a detective asked him whether he had ever thought about committing this type of murder, he, he responded that he had. Also wish he wouldn't have said that to him. <laughs> I know, right? You, no need to say that. Like, if you think about committing, like, let's be honest, we've all thought about committing a murder at some point, right? Right. Like, he, he, I guess he thought being but, honest would, would help him out. I don't yeah. know. God. Um, uh, more of their, their case against him. The nature of the wound inflicted on Peggy suggested that the perpetrator was left-handed and Timothy was left-handed. Oh God, that's that's a fair enough, a fair enough connection there, I suppose. Left-handed. Yeah, I don't know what percentage of the population it's, is left-handed. It's it's pretty small percent, what like ten percent or less. Yeah, it's pretty small. It's pretty small. Yeah. But mm. how do they know that though? With a stab straight in the, I guess the the trajectory of the knife. Perhaps, yeah. You would kind of know. The same thing, but like if you're standing behind somebody and you're stabbing them with your left hand, most likely that knife's going to go towards their right shoulder blade. I would think. You know what I'm saying? If like if, if you're right-handed, you're not going to, you can't stab somebody towards, towards the right shoulder blade, you know, into the back. Maybe that's how they were able to tell. I, I'm thinking the opposite. If I'm right-handed and I'm stabbing someone in the back, I'm stabbing their right shoulder blade. I'm not going to go across to their left shoulder blade. No, I'm saying like, well, the stab was towards the middle of the back, correct? Okay. But still it's going to end up on the right side for me. It wouldn't end up on the, on the opposite side. So no, maybe I was, agree the entry wound, but I'm talking about the direction mm. of the wound, the direction like yes, the oh, entry yeah, yeah, wound. Yeah. If yeah, you're right hand, be angled. Exactly, it's going to be angled to- going towards the right shoulder blade, and vice versa. Mm-hmm. If you're right handed, if you're right handed, you stab somebody in the back. Yeah, the knife's going to go in on the right side of the spine, but I feel like it's going to mm-hmm. be pointing out towards the left shoulder. Yeah, yeah, so. I'm sure that, that there's pretty. It's a pretty scientific thing. They can pretty accurately figure out whether someone was right handed or left handed based off the pattern and the no angle doubt. of the stab wounds. I don't doubt that. Right. But still not enough. So more of the case against him. More of the case, the circumstantial evidence they had was the knives in his room. Of course, the knife collection Yeah. Um, showed, you know, and then all the drawings. Um, and Tim of course, showed that he was familiar with. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, of course, in the collection of knives that he had, uh, they were able to pick out a knife that resembled the knife used. As far yeah. as it, rem- the length of the knife, the thickness of the, of the blade. Reminiscent of the West Memphis 3 a bit mm-hmm. with the, the serrated knife, the whole argument about that and the pattern of, of cuts you know and all that stuff exactly but that being said they never found the actual murder weapon their actual murder weapon so no they just found because a possible he had weapon. 
a knife or two in his room that that was similar to the knife that was potentially used in the crime um it's not enough for me not a chance um uh, tim told detectives that he thought the victim was wearing pink shoes in fact she was not her socks were pink however because her pants had been pulled down her socks would have not would not have been visible to someone merely walking by the crime scene oh that's a okay um but she wasn't wearing shoes and he said she was wearing pink shoes. So who knows? Um, in another interview with law enforcement, Tim asked if he had any suggestions concerning the investigation. Det- uh, Timothy said that the detective canvas uh, suggested that the detectives canvas a ditch near a particular bridge. Once again, reminds me of West Memphis three, right? The bridge with the whiskey bottle. Mm-hmm. Six months later, in this case, detectives found a survival knife with a serrated blade and a hollow handle near the ditch, very close to the bridge. He told him to look. Okay. That is odd. That is odd if that's true. But was it the knife? I mean, if it was, obviously they would have said this was the murder knife. They would have found the DNA of blood on it. And right. They just found a knife. Who knows if they threw it there. Exactly. Exactly. This Detective Broderick that's so determined to get him, I wouldn't put it past him to throw, you know, to place a knife there like that. Because it took him six months. Wouldn't, like, if he said that, wouldn't you go check it right away? Why did they then find it six months later? I don't understand that. Oh, I know, right? And he gave it, he get wait. So Timothy gave them the location of the knife or of a knife. He said to check this, this area where this bridge was. And six months later, they find a knife similar, but not the knife apparently. Mm-hmm. And why did he, what, why thing. did he tell them to check that area? What was, what was the deal with that? Fuck if I know, I don't know. Maybe he's doing some Damien Eccles stuff here. Seriously. Just messing with them. I don't know. Timothy, keep your fucking mouth shut. My God. Seriously. Yeah. Wow. So, so at the trial, the coroner um, opined that the serration on the knife could account for the irregular irregularity in the stab wound on the victim's back. Timothy was put in front of a jury with the evidence we just provided, tried and amazingly convicted in 1999 of murder and sentenced to life in prison. He said, quote, I remember my stomach just falling out. Another co- completely surreal, shocking moment in my life. No doubt. Um, and by- by that point, uh, Nancy Wheeler Holloway was working with the Colorado Bureau of Investigation. Remember, she was she had been convinced after sitting down with Timothy for twelve hours that he was innocent, um, and she had been pushed out of the police department mm-hmm. because of her pushback as far as Timothy as a suspect. Um, she, however, testified at Timothy's trial at the prosecution's request, even though she still openly questioned their case and yeah. actually contributed to him getting convicted. Quote, I wasn't very popular at that point with law enforcement or or the prosecution, uh, Wheeler Holloway said. And she immediately regretted when Timothy got convicted, having played a role in getting him convicted. Soon after his conviction, Timothy's uh, lawyers appealed to the Colorado Court of Appeals on the grounds that his drawings were inadmissible under rules of the court, as was testimony concerning a confrontation between masters and a teacher before the murder occurred. Oh, I I didn't know about this. I didn't know about this uh, confrontation between him and his teacher either. I'm not sure about what de- like what that involved, what was said between the two of them, but apparently right. it was not allowed at trial, and it and it was shown anyway to the jury. Wait, it was shown. Um, what do you mean it was shown? That was the teacher. Did the teacher testify? I mean, I doubt they had like video footage of no, this. No the 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 story of this confrontation between Tim and his teacher. Uh, shouldn't have been admissible according to his attorneys, but it was, but it was admissed in the court. It was shown to the jury. Yeah. Seems Um, unrelated. That being said, 
That being said, Timothy Masters' defense team also objected to the testimony between Dr. Malloy. The Colorado Court of Appeals unanimously upheld his conviction on February 15th, 2001. Mm. And he would spend several more years, nearly 10 more years in prison. Uh, meanwhile, Linda Holloway, or Linda Wheeler Holloway began working as a private investigator alongside Timothy Masters' lawyers to get the conviction overturned. So she became obsessed, became her life's mission to get this, who she believed this innocent young man who was uh, you know, locked up for murder free. She mm -hmm. said, quote, I knew that the truth had to come out or that the truth had not come out. I feel like my interest and my fight for this case began the day he got convicted. So the, the fight to free Timothy Masters continued in 2004. Um, they, they mounted another appeal on the grounds of ineffective counsel. The state appointed a new defense team who immediately began investigating the case. The defense team discovered that evidence, including the hairs found on uh, Peggy Hetrick and photographs of the fingerprints found on her, in her purse were missing. So they've been hiding key pieces of evidence to make it look like Timothy was guilty, you know, and made it basically turned away other potential suspects. That's insane. Just like anything Insane, that could right? rule him out was just inadmissible in court, right? Yep. They just couldn't yep. use they it. Get, they just straight up got rid of that evidence, it sounds like. Oh, my God. So gross, right? Seriously. Like, it's, it's, it's rare so, that the prosecution is like the super corrupt, gross one, right? It's like typically when you think about the, the um, corrupt lawyers, you think of defense attorneys, right? But thank God we well, have defense attorneys in instances like this. Yeah. You know, I feel like in the cases we've studied more often than not, it's the prosecutors that are doing dirty shit, but True. I, I know it goes both ways. That's but that's Hell the beauty yeah. of our justice system is you hope that it, the balance of it, you know, like it gets exposed when someone's doing dirty shit, mm -hmm. but often the prosecutors are, are able to get away with dirty shit more often because they, they have like the law on their side and the judges are often friends with them and things like that. And right. there's, there's more of that. Uh, uh, I see what you mean. I see what yeah. you mean. They're, they're more typically on the right side of history as well. Yeah. Prosecutors usually don't get blamed for, you there's know, more conflict of interest at play. The more conflict of interest at play when it comes to the prosecutors, they have too many connections to the, the justice system. Whereas the defense attorneys are kind of like on, it seems like they're, I don't, I don't know, We're going down the weeds here. Yeah. <laughs> it's case by case basis. Yeah. Right. Um, so during 2007, we, so we fast forward to 2007, Hearings. The defense alleged police and prosecutorial uh, misconduct at the investigation and trial. The defense argued that Jim Broderick perjured himself during the 1999 trial concerning his involvement in the case and that prosecutors allegedly withheld evidence about links to Dr. Richard Hammond, a potential suspect in the, in the murder case, who which we'll get to. Oof. That was the guy I was talking about earlier who would be good with a scalpel, yep. may have been wearing dress shoes, mm -hmm. and to me is the strongest suspect. And, of course, Jim Broderick uh and detectives withheld stuff that made this guy look guilty and, because it basically and this guy was just as close to the crime scene as matthews mm -hmm. yeah you know he was right yeah. there yeah but of course they had to hide that because that would kind of ruin the case against timothy right right they couldn't even bring this guy so up yeah, so in early 2008, special prosecutors assigned to the case agreed that critical information was not turned over to the original defense team and on January 18th, 2008, defense attorneys released evidence that further suggested Timothy Masters' innocence. They had touch DNA testing done in the Netherlands on evidence found at the scene um, and tested the samples, um, which did not include Timothy Masters' DNA. Rather, the DNA results pointed to uh, Peggy Hetrick's sometimes boy sometime boyfriend, Matthew Zollner, 
which we know that they had been together that night, that he'd offered her a ride. They'd been together at that bar. They probably hugged and touched each other during that night prior to the murder. So it makes sense that his touch DNA would be on there. And it doesn't necessarily mean he's the, he's the killer. Right. He, he did also, um, Matthew Zollner had uh, an alibi. He, that girlfriend he was with, he was with her till well after like 2 AM that morning. And she, she, you know, she told detectives this, so he had a pretty solid alibi. Okay. Um, Special prosecutors assigned to the appeal recommended overturning Timothy's sentence as a result of the DNA findings. The results were confirmed by the Colorado Bureau of Investigation, and on January 22, 2008, a Colorado judge vacated Timothy Masters' conviction and ordered him released immediately. After spending about 10 years in prison, mm. they finally admitted that there was not enough to convict him. God, um, he's due some and, uh, restitution, huh? Oh, he got paid, yeah. Yeah, he better. So after nearly... After nearly 10 years behind bars, Timothy walked out of the Larimer County courtroom, a free man with Nancy Wheeler Holloway right there with him. Quote, that was the highlight of my career, Wheeler Holloway said. If it wasn't for Linda, I would probably still be in prison, Timothy added. Since that day, they've had this relationship. They're good friends. They mm -hmm. they share common interest in horses. They talk on the phone frequently and see each other a few times a year. Birthdays for sure. Right. But we usually meet up for lunch every two or three months and hang out for longer than we should uh, since both have lots of stuff to do. They share mm -hmm. a love for horses. It was uh, Wheeler Holloway's ranch where they were meeting that, uh, that summer day. And so they just like spending time together and catching up on each other's lives. Um, wow. She says, quote, he's sensitive and considerate and just a kind, nice human being, Wheeler Holloway said of Timothy. And given that they met on opposite sides of the murder investigation, they're well aware of their friendship as a most unlikely one. And that's the, for real. what we kind of alluded to at the beginning of this case is like, this is the first time we've ever seen something like this, where someone's wrongfully convicted and one of the detectives that got them convicted ends up being good friends with them like this. Yeah, yeah. Although, you know, even during the trial, she had her serious doubts about his about him being guilty you know what i'm saying like mm -hmm. i feel like yeah. she was on his side pretty early she just couldn't be as vocal about it until after yeah. she was like okay the police department fucked me over so there goes my career so fuck you i'm gonna get this free mm -hmm. guy out you know or this innocent person out rather yeah timothy said we've been friends for so long it seems kind of normal to me i know it's not but it seems normal <laughs> um, but whether it's normal or not, they said, uh, it's incredibly strong, a friendship. They insist that's built to last a lifetime quote. Linda is a good person. I'm honored to have her as my friend. Um, she's a lifelong friend at this point. Right on. I kept calling her Nancy, by the way. I think that's because in the past we did the case with Nancy Wheeler, the name in it, but, yeah. uh, I'm sorry. The female detective that, that helped Timothy get free is Nancy uh, is, is, a. Uh, yeah, I still keep saying it. Uh, Linda, <laughs> Linda, 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 yeah. When you do this many cases, I think I said Matthews earlier when I meant Masters because there was another Matthew yeah. that we were talking about in the timeline at the same yeah. time. But yeah, yeah, it's all these. But names. her name is Linda Wheeler Holloway, not Nancy. Right, right. So in 2010, uh, Timothy Masters received a total of 10 million, one million dollars for each year he was behind bars right from on. the city of Fort Collins and Larimer County uh, to settle his wrongful conviction lawsuits. He now lives in Northern Colorado. Quote. Most days I'd say, yeah, life is good. I still deal with depression because of everything I went through. But he's got $10 million to uh, kind of make him feel a little better, I suppose. Yeah, that feels a little bit better. Would you Would you spend 10 years in prison for 10 mil? That's a good ratio. That's a tough one. I mean, probably not, but... Yeah, probably not either. I don't know, man. A million uh, a year? Would you spend one think. year for a million? 
trying to think of how old he was. He would have been in his mid twenties, I think, when he was convicted, right? Because he was what, like, yeah, that he was in his teens when it happened, see, and then ten years later, they finally they finally conv- uh, got him convicted. So he he got out like in his early to mid, about my age now. Yeah, about thirty five. Yeah, with ten um, mil and like a story to tell about being in prison for ten years. <laughs> I mean, that's not the worst thing ever. It's not the worst, but see, that kind of played a role in him getting convicted as well. Was the fact that it took. You know, it took 10 years to convict him. So when he allegedly did this crime, if he would have been tried then as a skinny little 15-year-old kid, oh, yeah, you know, rough that's a lot different. But now now you're a 25-year-old um, military veteran is on trial, someone yeah. who knows how to kill, right, at 25. And the, and the jury is seeing this, a, a full-grown man who is a much more opposing figure than a 15-year-old mm-hmm. skinny boy. And and now that now they're looking at it like, oh yeah, this guy could have done it, you know, and that's not fair. Yeah. That's bullshit. There should have been yeah. a picture of him at that's fifteen, the whole time. Yeah, very true. Do you think the ten years he spent? How many drawings do you think he did of like violent shit while he was in prison for ten years? I don't know. So you're I, thinking I, like, how many war depictions did he, or did you think he he hung that up, considering it's what locked him up? Yeah, like, I, I don't think he's into that anymore. Ten years later, I mean, come on, are you into yeah. the same shit you were into when you were fifteen? I mean, you, come on. I would man. hope he would have. I would have hoped that he would be drawing, uh, still drawing, but drawing more pleasant scenarios, so that like when his appeals would come up, they, I can only imagine. Like the prosecutors finding what he'd been drawing. See, look, he's still drawing murder in prison. Like, <laughs> still you can't let this it. man out. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, the, the yeah, people people don't know how to digest art. They really don't. It's it's. Sometimes... I'd be drawing people hugging with rainbows in the background. <laughs> <laughs> Just Care Bears having a picnic. Yeah, exactly. The, the lightest right. shit you can possibly find. <laughs> yeah. So to this day, Peggy Hetrix sadly remains unsolved. Uh, her murder remains unsolved. And uh, Linda Wheeler Holloway is now working on the case as an investigator for the Cold Case Foundation, a nonprofit organization that investigates unsolved violent crimes. Yeah. She said she believes that Peggy's murder will one day be solved and that it won't, she won't stop until it is. Quote, it's a nightmare of Western society that you wake up in a prison and you're innocent, said Steve Leto, the author uh, who wrote a book uh, about Timothy Masters, Drawn to Justice, um, about his release and exoneration. Uh, it's actually Drawn um, to Injustice. Oh, draw it in. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Draw it in. Thanks for that. No problem. So any doubt of Tim's innocence, however, were put to bed when an announcement, because I'm sure they were still trying to get him locked up again. You know, oh, I'm sure yeah. that detective Broderick wouldn't, still wasn't letting it go, but Fucking Broderick. Um, any doubt of his innocence was put to bed in an announcement on June 28th, 2011, when Colorado Attorney General John Southers said Masters is no longer a suspect in the 1987 murder of Peggy Hetrick um, and has been completely exonerated. And, and he on, said finally. in a statement, quote, He said in a statement, quote, our team conducted more than 170 interviews and conducted further DNA analysis throughout the past year. A statewide grand jury heard evidence and testimony from numerous witnesses. And based on the testimony, the forensic analysis and the crime scene analysis, the overwhelming conclusion is that Timothy Masters was not involved in the murder of Peggy Hetrick. So his name finally cleared once and for all in 2011. Finally. Um, Let's let's quickly go through some of these other suspects. This doctor that we keep alluding to is very interesting as a suspect here. Dr. Richard Hammond. Gotta mention yeah. him. Dr. Richard Hammond. In 1995, seven years after the murder and two years before the retention of experts for the master's trial, Dr. Richard Hammond, an eye surgeon, was arrested for secretly filming women's genitalia, including that of his own female family members, through fake ventilation grates in his downstairs bathroom. So the cameras creepy. were positioned to allow 
The cameras were positioned to allow for detailed close-up viewing of women's genitals while sitting on the toilet. Yuck. Mm. Investigators also found that Hammond kept thousands of dollars worth of pornography hidden in a locked office and in a storage shed in, in town, indicating an obsession with female genitalia. As a surgeon, Hammond had the skill and equipment to perform the precise mutilation found on Hetrick's body. In 1987, Hammond's bedroom window overlooked the location where, Pe where Peggy's body was discovered, and he was home the morning of the murder the morning after the murder despite his usually scheduled surgeries on that day of the week Oof. those two things right there the Damn. fact that his window overlooked the murder scene and also he was not at work when he should have been yeah so he didn't have an alibi for his uh whereabouts that morning that yeah. he's a professional a doctor that wears dress shoes um and then you have this he committed suicide in march of 1995 several days after his arrest for the i'm guessing for the um you know uh, peeping in camera, whatever right. he was doing. Right, right. Um, the police were called to La, La Quinta Motor Inn in North Denver. There they found Hammond dead, an IV needle containing cyanide residue sticking out of his thigh. Quote, my death should satisfy the media's thirst for blood, he wrote in the suicide note. Mm -hmm. Okay, so he's, bl he's blaming others. That's a sure trait of a killer there too. Yes, it is. And if we haven't put a picture uh, of him up yet, look at that dude. My God. Right. I mean, yeah. he's got the Dahmer glasses and everything. <laughs> this. I think it's funny, though. We're guilty of bias here because this whole time we've been excusing odd things about Timothy, his drawings yeah. and whatnot. But it's like now we're just saying, look at him. He's a murderer. <laughs> Let's yeah, just be clear. But there's not enough to there, there's still not enough to convict him. But he, I, in my opinion, he's still a stronger suspect than Timothy ever was. Well, they haven't tested his DNA either, have they? I don't know. They should if they haven't. They if, even if they have to uh, his body, dig him up. Yeah, his, know, body up his body needs his body needs to be exhumed. I'm sure. I'm sure Linda is trying to do that or has tried to do that. Yeah. I would hope. Yeah, I would hope that needs to happen. So, though investigators noted a possible link between Hammond and the Hetrick murder, no follow-up investigation was done. Broderick ordered evidence in the Hammond case destroyed before it could be examined for any link with Peggy, based on the premise that he had committed suicide, and there was no criminal investigation that would begin. Fucking Broderick, dude. What the hell, man? Broderick like, is sick. Well, his reasoning was that he was trying to protect the victims on the tapes. Okay, I get that. But, like, you don't make the tapes public. Like, you still need to check them out in law enforcement, right? I mean, doing yeah. your due diligence. I know I hate to put these women through this. I get it. But there could be some very, 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 very damning evidence on those hundreds of tapes mm -hmm. that this guy had. Like, yeah. and to just crush them? Like Broderick, that's that's sketch, that's sketch yeah. on his part. Like yep. I say, I understand protecting the victim's privacy, and you can still do that. I I really do. I feel like you can still do that, and handle this with care, and then destroy. Broderick the ends up on trial later for his behavior during this whole investigation. Um, mm -hmm. So you know, it, of course, law enforcement takes care of their own oftentimes, and he doesn't. Know, he gets. He gets off on Slap what on it could have been like six years of charges, but um, let's let's wrap up the Dr. Hammond thing. The arrest of Dr. Hammond and his subsequent suicide was uh, information withheld from the Dr. Malloy and other experts, and the FBI was not informed of this case by Larimer County to reconsider their profiling of Mr. Masters from 1987. So they basically hid him from uh, from everyone involved in the investigation. They, they knew he was a strong suspect, but they were so zoned in on Timothy that. They didn't. They didn't tell the FBI. They didn't tell anybody about him until it was too late. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Um, 
the other suspect or one of the other suspects, Matthew Zollner, the on again, off again boyfriend, the DNA that led to the 2008 overturning of Timothy Masters conviction, as we mentioned, that touch DNA that matched up to, to Matthew mm-hmm. um, implicated him in, in Peggy's uh, murder, potentially. Um, he was a young used car salesman who testified at Timothy's trial. He was initially a suspect in 1987, but was quickly ruled out. Um, and officials plan to renew the investigation. They should still look into him. Obviously, he had that uh, alibi with the girlfriend that he was with. Uh huh. Um, but she could have lied for him. Absolutely. Um, his touch DNA was found on her body. Dude, not only um, could she have lied, they had to dated him. and broken up. There was some motive there, I suppose. Not only could she have lied for him, she has motive. I mean, if she truly loves this guy and wants to be with him, maybe she wants to be with him exclusively. Maybe she doesn't. Mm-hmm. Maybe she's not a fan of the open thing. Maybe she doesn't like yeah. the the old girlfriend still being in the picture. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I mean, you have to you have to do your due diligence on yeah. him. Due diligence. Um. So in June of 2008, let's get into the aftermath of this whole thing. After a six-month review of the case, Weld County District Attorney Ken Buck determined that the police had acted inappropriately, malfeasance, but not criminally uh, malfeasance. Mm-hmm. They just kind of keep brushing this disgusting. Um, wrongful conviction and terrible investigation done mainly on the part of Broderick. They keep just sweeping it under the rug on October 21st, 2008, David Lane, a criminal defense attorney in Denver filed a civil lawsuit in federal district court against Larimer County prosecutors, Terry Gilmore and Jolene Blair, as well as detective James Broderick, alleging violations of master's civil rights, Timothy master's civil rights in their legal brief are facts concerning the master's case, including withholding of evidence from Dr. Malloy, which mm-hmm. we keep mention- mentioning. So they withheld all that because it, it made him look guilty and not Timothy. Right. And other witnesses. Um, and, and interference with the sharing of evidence among expert witnesses that would cast doubt on Timothy's involvement in, Hetri- in Peggy's homicide and would have pointed toward other suspects. No information on other suspects, including their existence, was provided to the experts at the time of their retention. The county settled with Masters for $4.1 million and then again for $5.9 million for a total of $10 million, which we mentioned earlier. But in the general election in November of 2010, judges Blair and Gilmore were voted out of office, receiving less than 40% of the vote in the 8th Judicial Court or di- District. Their tenures ended uh, in 2011 as well. And then on July 29, 2011, a Larimer County grand jury indicted James Broderick on nine counts of perjury. He faced up to six years in prison, in prison if uh, each count was convicted. Um, those char- charges were, of course, dismissed. As I mentioned, they... Oftentimes, just let these things go, right. unfortunately. <clears throat> in 2013, James Broderick resigned to avoid an internal investigation into his handling of the Hetrick murder. Fort Collins has reportedly spent $400,000 to date uh, to defend Broderick. Charges against him were finally dismissed in 2013. So he got this, he got this, this kid locked up for 10 years, uh, did all kinds of dirty shit, yeah. hiding evidence that made this Dr. Malloy look guilty so that they convict Timothy on basically just a bunch of circumstantial evidence, no physical evidence, and then he gets off scot-free for it. Obviously, his name's ruined, mm-hmm. and he had to you know, face trials and things like that, but still, you know, no jail time for him, even nope. though he locked an innocent person up for a decade. Yeah, that, that can't be... We can't let that slide, man. I think that's why these detectives are so likely to just jump after these suspects, man. They, they get a slap on the wrist if they're wrong, and then they get freaking an award and they're a hero if they're right you know what i mean or even if they just catch somebody if somebody Mm -hmm. pays for it you know like dr malloy he kind of alluded to you know the media's thirst for blood i'm sure there's a lot of pressure 
which we didn't talk about in this case. In this small town, there's a lot of pressure on these detectives, you know, and sometimes it's worth the risk to just to get somebody, to get somebody. Especially if you think that this kid could be a menace to society, whether he is now or not, you have enough evidence to be like, ah, he's not a good kid, you know? Yep. I think once they saw the... Once they saw the drawings, dude, the 2,200 pages of drawings and stuff, yeah. they were just, that was it. That was for Broderick. He was convinced. Who, was what, what kind of young boy would draw this graphic shit? And mm-hmm. that meant he was a murderer. Bullshit, man. Bullshit. Yeah. But crazy case. Absolutely crazy Guess what's case. not bullshit? Putting oh organic, Gaia. all-natural deodorants in your, <laughs> in your armpits. That's not bullshit. That is not bullshit at all. That is a great choice, actually. That's good shit. Yep. Oh My Guy is an innovative, all-natural deodorant, fragrance, and beard oil company specializing in paraben and aluminum-free products. Their innovative line of deodorants inhibit the growth of odor-causing bacteria while maintaining effectiveness. At Oh My Gaia, they use only all-natural, paraben, and aluminum-free organic ingredients. And guys, there's definitely a scent to fit your vibe, to fit your style, from vanilla to cherry almond, sandalwood, lavender, lemongrass, Egyptian musk. And then there's new scents that they're adding all the time, Sailor, Barbershop. And we have our own scent here at True Crime Guys called True Crime Pine. And guys, because you're True Crime Guys listeners, you can use the code CREEPER for 15% off your order at shop underscore ohmygaia on Instagram or ohmygaia.com. Again, that's code word CREEPER for 15% off your order. And that's ohmygaia.com, O-H-M-Y-G-A-I-A.com. And guys, there's links to Oh My Gaia and the key and the code word right below the description of this episode, as well as for our other sponsor, Tonic CBD. That's right. We love to support small businesses that are helping to keep us healthy with all natural ingredients. That's why we also love to support Tonic, mm-hmm. Tonic CBD. And it's true, not all CBD products are created equal. You know, you can't just get some CBD at a gas station and expect it to be as good as what you're getting from Tonic. And right. And from, from how the hemp is grown and processed to how it's formulated and delivered into your body, every step of the process matters. Um, and Tonic has original formulas using CBD, adaptogens, herbs, and superfoods back, uh, superfoods back to 2017 and has been working to deliver the most effective, intentional, sustainable products possible. They cultivate their own hemp on their certified organic farm in upstate New York that travels only 30 minutes to their state-of-the-art manufacturing and distribution facility where it's turned into a finished product and sent to you, ensuring only the highest quality vibes at every, stetch of the, uh, every step of the process. Their farm-to-bottle CBD plus botanical blends are uniquely formulated to provide targeted support where you need it most. Each and every high-quality ingredient is thoughtfully selected for its ability to support and enhance the benefits of CBD, resulting in a more effective, well-rounded, and consistent wellness solution from the mind and body. They have a bunch of different blends depending on your needs. Chill Tonic is one of my favorites for anxiety, Mm -hmm. and I love Grounded at night. I use Grounded every night to help me get a good night's sleep. But they combined CBD with uh, things like ashwagandha, lemon balm, and passion uh, passion flower, uh, black seed oil, all all sorts of different really powerful antioxidants um, to help your body recover. Um, And it's really easy to verify the quality of their products as well. They have a microchip uh, at the top of each of their containers that the CBD comes in. You can tap your tap your phone on there and get third-party re- uh, lab results and product information, details about their farm, and even helpful blog posts to provide you with more ed- education on CBD. So with values rooted in quality, integrity, and sustainability, Tonic is committed to, to creating plant-based wellness products that are good for the people and good for the planet. And to get yours, go to tonicvibes.com and use the code word CREEPER for 20% off your order. That's tonicvibes.com. 
code word creeper for 20% off. The links to our sponsors are below. Um, and yeah. with that, I want to move on to quickly give some shout outs to people who have gone in and rated and reviewed the show in the last couple of weeks. I want to say thank you to Jersey Creeper 86. He says, love creeping. Uh, this love this podcast helps me during my overnight shifts used to live in Vegas, but now I live in New Jersey. Thanks for the banter. Then we got West MC two thumbs up. Love this show. Five stars. Thank you. Raven 606 sending love from Kentucky. Love this podcast. Great true crime with good music and funny bantering. You all are awesome. Thank you. Raven 606. Right on. Jake at the disco five stars, a bunch of fire emojis. We'll take short it. and simple. That's right. Then we got uh, memes cap saying, keep on creeping five stars. Love how you inform and entertain us all the time, all the same time. I'm familiar with many of the stories, but always hear something new from you guys. How about a Pam Hup episode? Doesn't get more insane than her. Would right. probably uh. love uh, to be a two-parter. We, we just did that on we Patreon. We just did Pam Hup. So, That's right. There you go. Memes cap. <laughs> hope you guys, yep. hope you enjoyed that. That was on patreon.com slash true crime guys, where $2 a month gets you access to that episode, mm -hmm. as well as many of our other episodes we've done over the years that were Patreon exclusive episodes. Right. Uh, but you get a much better value at the $5 tier. Michael, you want to talk a little bit about that tier? It's the best tier in Patreon, we like to say. Absolutely. At the $5 tier, you guys get access to everything we make at TCG Productions. From True Crime Guys Patreon exclusive, like Lauren alluded to, Just the Banter, every single Friday, uh, Strange Shorts, every single Monday, as well as Higher Thoughts, uh, Lauren's 5-Minute Murder Show, every single Saturday, um, higher thought, like I said, higher thoughts sprinkled in, as well as Sandu stories once a month, where it's like our fully produced with uh, radio show with like voice actors, theme music, sound effects. It's fully uh, immersive audio, as we like to it's call like it. It's like a they're like fictionalized versions of true true crime stories. Oftentimes, yes. it's like a, we like to call it true crime. What if? If you guys are familiar yeah. with, uh, I think there's like a Marvel What If show out right now. I, I'm not a huge comic book fan. Uh, admittedly, but a lot of people who are in the Marvel universe and love that shit, they love that that what if and whatnot. So we thought it'd be cool to kind of adopt that same thing with popular true crime cases, stories. We got one based on H.H. H. Holmes and one on the Salem witch trials and one on um, uh, Rodney Alcala. Like we got we got all kinds of different stuff. So we just did. People one. are loving that show. We've been getting tons of great feedback, man. People are, love Sandy stories. It's one of the favorite things we do. Right on. It's it's a lot of work. So I'm glad I'm glad everybody loves it, but it's absolutely one of my favorite one of my favorite things too. Like when you finish the Sandu stories, man, it's like whew, it's like a marathon. <laughs> it's yeah. like Yeah, a lot of work goes into it. A lot of work um, goes into for it. For like but... oftentimes for like a twenty minute episode, but That's right. Well there, um, we it got takes you on a ride. It no doubt. Ride. No doubt. It's all killer, no filler. Uh, no pun intended. Um, but yeah, like Lauren said, they're usually anywhere from 20 to 30 minutes. I think we have a couple that are 40 to 50 minutes, but we have 15 episodes of Sandu Stories available on Patreon right now. We just released chapter 15 um, last week. And like we said, uh, it's usually, I think it's the third week of every month, somewhere around there, you'll get a new Sandu Stories. And that comes out on Thursdays. But at that five dollar right. tier, Patreon, and you could pay up front fifty four dollars for the year and be done. That's right. Um, on that tier, you get a, a new a new episode of our content from one of our shows almost every day, or at least every other day. Mm -hmm. So you're getting entertained all throughout the week with Patreon. So yeah, the link for that's below. Also, definitely check out our YouTube if you haven't yet, and subscribe to that. That's this episode right now is recorded. You can watch us tell the story, see our faces, That's right. see pictures of the victims, the killers, the crime scenes, things like that, yep. as well as the story progresses. Um, so if you haven't checked that out and subscribed on YouTube, check that out as well. 
um, it's a different experience watching us it do this podcast as opposed to just listening. I, I'm still a huge fan of just audio podcasts as well because I drive a lot. Right. But if you usually consume our content like at a desk at work and you're able to watch the show, uh, you know, even if you just have the tab open and you click over to like see what we're talking about uh, every now and then. Yeah, it does kind of add something. You might enjoy that. So check that out. Yeah, it definitely yeah, adds definitely. something to the show. And like, like Lauren said, we record every free episode on YouTube um, as well as every Just the Banter. So every Just the Banter, which we yep. release only on Patreon, there is video aspect to Just the Banter as well. So that's another yep. fun show. It's a good way to get involved. Yep. All right. All right. Does that about do it? I think that's it, man. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode. We'll see you next week for another freeloader episode. That's right. Um, keep creeping. Have a great week. Keep creeping, guys. True crime, guys. In the desert, we like a barrage. It's okay if you clicked on us because you thought we was true crime garage. Now we ain't mad at you. Sit down, let us talk at you. I'm talking to the creeper army. We out here making murder, get murder, get murder. True crime, guys. In the desert, we like a barrage. It's okay if you clicked on us cause you thought we was true crime garage Now we ain't mad at you, sit down let us talk at you I'm talking to the creeper army, we out here making murder charming You hush your mouth boy